Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Happy Halloween, everyone. I hope your night is filled with cute costumes and lots of candy. Today's episode is a Halloween episode, but it does involve a crime against children, so listener discretion is advised. But before we get into the episode, let's quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. While there are many recorded acts related to trick-or-treating going back to ancient times, the modern tradition of children donning costumes and going door-to-door for treats is most closely related to the Scottish tradition of guising. The practice of putting on a disguise and knocking on neighbors' doors first appears in written history during the 16th century in Scotland. Children would put on a mask or face paint and recite a rhyme and threaten mischief if they didn't get a treat or some coins. Modern trick-or-treaters in America are more apt to dress as their favorite movie or TV character, and most young children have no ill intent in their campaign for candy. They carry plastic buckets or cloth bags and happily accept candy and other treats from complete strangers. With a high level of trust that is normally taboo when it comes to complete strangers, millions of children blissfully cast aside their stranger danger teachings for one evening to pursue a once-a-year sugar rush from all the free treats. There are many urban legends about the dangers of trick-or-treating. Some stem from the Tylenol murders in Chicago that occurred just before Halloween in 1982. An unknown murderer killed seven people using tainted medicine left on pharmacy shelves, and many cities canceled trick-or-treating that year out of fear of similar attacks on children. But before the horrific Tylenol murders, there was an even scarier, more directly related case of tainted candy. One young child would lose his life, and the true story of his murder is scarier than any Halloween movie. This is the story of Timothy O'Brien. Timothy O'Brien was 8 years old in 1974 when his father, Ronald Clark O'Brien, accompanied Timothy and his sister Elizabeth for a night of trick-or-treating in Pasadena, Texas. This was a rare experience for Timothy, as his father had never shown interest in supervising the Halloween tradition before. Excited, the young boy, his sister, their father, and a neighbor and his two children headed out into the neighborhood to knock on doors and amass a fortune in sweets. Timothy was eight, and his sister Elizabeth was five, and the group of four children ran from door to door, waiting for the home's occupants to answer their beckoning, and after a quick announcement of trick-or-treat, the homeowner would reward them with some candy before a quick thank you and a sprint to the next house. Children can be impatient, so after knocking on one of the doors and not getting a response, they left and had success at their next stop. When they checked back in with Ronald, he surprised them with five very large pixie sticks candies. So these pixie stick candies, they're going to be central to this entire case. I remember pixie sticks as a child, and for the most part, they were in these little paper straws. They were about, I don't know six inches long or something about that that length and so inside this 
paper straw that was sealed at both ends. If you ripped off one of the ends, you could then down all the powdered candy sugar stuff that's inside these these pixie sticks. I remember the from growing up and they were these rather small these commercialized little pixie sticks. What we're going to talk about in this case is a much larger form of the pixie stick. This these are it's either described in some places as 18 inches, other places at 21 inches, but these are over a foot and a half long and these were plastic tubes is the best way to describe them a kind of a thin plastic tube that's filled with this pixie stick powdered sugar mix this is something you often see now i guess uh, i remember seeing them at like the mall of america and places where you can fill these tubes with whatever choice of powdered candy mix there was a lot of times there's sour mixes, but basically it's just a, a plastic tube that will hold this large amount of this powdered sugar mix stuff. And you then, in this case, these ends were stapled shut of these plastic tubes. You would remove one end of the, the staples and you would end up with you know basically just a, a large tube that you could then tip back and take in as much of this powder as you wanted. And when you're talking about somewhere between a foot and a half and two feet worth of, of this powder in this tube is not something that was designed to usually be eaten all at once. So though the kids are going to go knock on this door, there's no answer. If you've ever been trick-or-treating, you know the kids are just going to run to that next door then, try to secure some candy from the next neighbor. And the way trick-or-treating usually works, at least from what I've seen and what I've experienced is the parents, in this case, Ronald and this neighbor, they're going to be walking on the street, kind of paralleling the kids as they run from door to door. So after these kids leave this house with there's no answer, they run to the next door, they come back to check in. Sometimes parents will carry additional places for the kids to dump the candy uh, in case their bag or bucket gets too full. Uh, but basically the kids are going to check back in with their parents and this is where Ronald's gonna say hey while you guys were trick-or-treating at that next house that guy answered or came to the door and he gave me five of these pixie sticks these giant pixie sticks so he's gonna give one to each of the kids that he's out trick-or-treating with which is four and eventually he's gonna find another child to give the fifth to and this is a, a child apparently that the, the family knew from church so each of the four kids trick-or-treating has one of these large pixie sticks and so does this random kid they ran into while they're out trick-or-treating now we'll get into one incident that occurred in a little bit here but we'll keep going with the story so after their halloween adventure was over the family separated and ronald and his two children returned home the children asked if they could eat some of their candy and ronald told them they could each have one piece According to Ronald, Timothy had been eyeing the large pixie stick, and he stated that his son picked that treat for his consumption that evening. So this is pretty common. I didn't look up to see if Halloween was on a school night. Uh, tonight is is on a school night, so there's a lot of parents that, of course, the kids want to sit down and just chow through as much of the candy that they got but because they're going to get home at night because there's going to be school the next day and again in this case maybe there was maybe there wasn't but the rule in ronald's house was that each kid could pick out one piece of candy to enjoy that evening and 
according to him, Timothy picks this large pixie stick, which if you've ever had even the small pixie stick, you know, again, it's just pure sugar. It's basically flavored sugar coming out of that pixie stick. So as a parent, if I think that my kid is going to want to sleep at all that night, I'm not giving him a foot and a half of pure sugar. But this is, this, according to Ronald, is Timothy's choice and he's going to let him consume this pixie stick. Now, Timothy struggled to open the end of the large straw, and Ronald assisted his son in opening the straw, and when the powder failed to leave the straw, once again, Ronald lent a helping hand and was able to free the stuck powder so Timothy could enjoy the treat. Because these pixie sticks, again, they're packed tight with this powder. A lot of the times in in these little uh, paper straw versions of it, you had to kind of manipulate, squeeze the the straw to get the powder to break up, because if it sits down there and gets compacted, it obviously doesn't want to fall even with gravity so Ronald's going to help Timothy open the straw it's got this really tough staple on the end of the the straw that's kind of a safety mechanism I guess to protect the contents inside and for whatever reason this he's going to struggle getting this staple open so that he can get into the pixie stick to the powder so Ronald helps him I don't know if he cuts it open or removes the staple for him and then uh, when Timothy goes to consume the powder it's stuck in there so Ronald's going to help him unstick the powder and consume it but as soon as Timothy tasted the powder he claimed that it tasted bad so Ronald gave his son some Kool-Aid to wash down the bitter tasting powder it was just moments later that Timothy complained of an upset stomach and ran to the bathroom to vomit up the foul powder and Kool-Aid the vomiting was soon accompanied by convulsions before Timothy lost consciousness Ronald dialed 911 and an ambulance rushed the eight-year-old to the hospital, but he was pronounced dead on arrival. It had been less than an hour from ingesting the candy to Timothy's tragic passing. Police and city officials realized they had a public health emergency, and despite the fear of possible mass hysteria, they quickly notified parents of the incident, as it was suspected very early on that the death was related to the single item of candy the boy had been allowed to consume. We've talked about this before, especially with the Tylenol murders. There's going to be a lot of similarities between this and the Tylenol murders. Public health officials and police have to walk a very fine line when it comes to a situation like this. You don't want mass panic or mass hysteria. uh, In the case of the Tylenol murders, we talked about how basically anybody who consumed Tylenol in the day or two prior to the news breaking of of this cyanide-laced Tylenol we're calling, we're going to the hospital, we're overwhelming medical staff with the potential that they may have been poisoned. And even when the medical staff in that case said, hey, cyanide kills so quickly that if you actually consumed it, you wouldn't be in here talking to us or or expressing your concerns. Again, you have to walk that fine line because you can't not tell anybody because then if more people ingest it and die without having any type of a warning, you haven't done your job of keeping the public safe. But you also can't have this mass hysteria, mass panic about tainted candy or children that were potentially poisoned or sick. So public health officials walk this fine line. They have to notify the parents of any potential exposure. And in reality, in this case, it's going to be a pretty limited amount because they're going to link it back to this pixie stick pretty quick and they're going to know that there's four of these other pixie sticks out. Now, Elizabeth has one, and that's within the family, so that one quickly is going to be secured. And then the neighbor has two, 
and then so does this boy from church. But the timing of this is a little difficult because first they're going to do an autopsy on Timothy to reveal his cause of death. And this was going to be exposure to potassium cyanide, which is an extremely lethal chemical used oftentimes in assassination by poisoning. And while some people can smell cyanide's almond aroma, to much of the population the powder is odorless and the bitter taste can be masked using sweetened add additives such as powdered candy or sweet beverages. And so in a lot of the poisoning cases that have existed in America, cyanide is one of the most popular uh, forms of poisoning. There's others that involve other chemicals, but cyanide's relatively easy to get your hands on, or at least it was. And it's, it does have some uses, and we'll talk about those in a little bit. So the right person, or I guess you could say the wrong person, that can get their hands on cyanide can do a lot of damage. Again, especially if you mix it into something that kind of masks the, the, the taste or the flavor. And that almond smell, even if you can smell it as almonds, you may not assume that the combination of the smell of the almond and the bitter taste is going to mean that you just ingested cyanide. And as Timothy had only consumed the pixie stick, it was secured by police and after testing it, it was suspected that prior to ingestion, the candy straw had been opened with the top two inches of powdered candy removed and that powder had been replaced with a powdered form of potassium cyanide. Timothy's candy was estimated to have enough deadly mix to kill two grown adults. The race was on to find the other four sticks that possibly contaminated more of the fatal substance. And as I mentioned before, the candy given to the sister was easy to obtain, and thankfully the two sticks given to the children that accompanied the O'Briens had been untouched. Panic set in when the parents of the fifth child were notified of their son's possession of the tainted candy. They had allowed him to go to bed with his haul of candy, and they found the boy in bed with the pixie stick in his hand. Miraculously, the boy had also struggled to open the candy just like Timothy had and had fallen asleep before he could remove the staple and ingest the contents. So this is one of the scariest parts of this story is I can't even imagine what those parents were going through as soon as they are notified, hey, your son is in possession of, of a deadly piece of candy and you realize you let your child go to bed with all of his candy and he has access to it and can eat it and you're thinking, okay, well, as long as he didn't eat the pixie stick, you know, we're fine. As long as he didn't ingest that powder, he's fine. And you walk in and see him laying in the bed with that pixie stick in his hand, and you know that that was filled with a deadly poison. I mean, just sheer and utter panic. I can't even imagine what you're going through as a parent. And then to have that, I guess, overwhelming sense of relief when you find out that he didn't actually get the pixie stick open. Again, that just the swing of emotions in, in a five-minute period right there would just be terrifying and, and then elation all, all at the same time. So with all the deadly sweets located, the police tested the remaining four straws and found they all had been compromised as well and actually contained twice as much cyanide as Timothy's straw. So if all the children had eaten the candy, the police would be dealing with a quintuple murder to investigate. Instead, the tragedy was isolated to Timothy and his grieving family. His father, the procurer of the treats, told police had been given the candy from a dark house after the children lost their patience waiting for someone to come to the door. Initially, Ronald said he couldn't remember the exact house because they had visited many that evening. While this would have been believable had the group visited hundreds of houses, investigators learned that because it had been raining that evening, the group only visited a couple dozen homes on two streets. 
They confronted Ronald about his memory lapse, and they eventually walked the trick-or-treat route, and he eventually identified a dark house as the location he obtained the pixie sticks. The house belonged to a man named Courtney Melvin, and investigators believed they had the first big break in the case. But they soon learned that Courtney had been at work until 11 p.m. on Halloween. The strength of the alibi was increased by the fact that he was employed as an air traffic controller at a nearby airport. There were plenty of witnesses both in person and over the radio that heard Courtney working that evening, and as an air traffic controller, there was documentation to further support the alibi. Courtney was ruled out of having any involvement in the murder of Timothy. So I'm going to assume that this Courtney lives alone. It didn't mention that anywhere in the articles, but the fact that police really quickly rule out anybody from this home as potentially being the source of this, these pixie sticks leads me to believe that Courtney has this airtight alibi. I mean, if there's short of being a reporter on television or you know, an anchor on a, on a news station or something like that during the time of a murder, so you are live at a location on TV where everyone can see you, being an air traffic controller is a pretty darn good alibi in terms of your at a station you're radioing airplanes pilots are hearing you they know your voice you're signing logs that indicate your your activity you're checking in at the start of work it didn't say how far away the airport was but i'm guessing even on breaks you're either being seen or there's just not enough time in order for you to commit this crime so he's got this absolute airtight alibi it's not a girlfriend or a wife or a friend just stating hey he was with me we were out driving you know it's, it's some type of an alibi that could be a lie and, and really can't be confirmed and it relies on that one person's word this is an alibi that's confirmed by dozens of people and documentation and so police are going to realize something's not right here ronald at first can't remember this house and a lot of the times people don't trick-or-treat in their own neighborhood. They go to either nicer neighborhoods or more trick-or-treat friendly neighborhoods and they're willing to drive their children there just because they might live in an area that doesn't have a lot of houses or doesn't have a lot of houses close to each other so it's just easier to trick-or-treat in certain neighborhoods. So if this was a neighborhood they didn't live in and if it had been raining and they'd been out for two hours and crisscrossed half a dozen dozen different streets and went to hundreds of different houses i could definitely understand how ronald might have trouble remembering exactly which house gave him these tainted pixie sticks and that's originally his story is that he can't remember this but police are likely going to talk to the neighbor talk to elizabeth the surviving daughter talk to the neighbor's kids and they're all going to say hey it was raining we went basically up and down two streets I'm guessing that's a dozen, maybe a couple dozen homes, but it's going to be pretty memorable which house gave you these sticks. I mean, especially as the, the parent going along, this is likely the only house that you actually walked up to and obtained candy for your children. It's not like you were going up to every single door, also trick-or-treating. So this should stick out in his mind more. The fact that it doesn't, the fact that he tries to play it off as he can't remember... And then when he does remember, he picks a house where there was nobody home. It's verified there was nobody home. So police are going to start to look at Ronald a little closer. And since they're already suspicious of Ronald because of his feigned lack of memory, investigators started to look into him as a possible suspect. It seemed almost unbelievable that he could be responsible because that meant he not only gave his own children the tainted candy, 
He twice helped his son ingest the poison by first cutting the straw open for him and then giving him a sweet drink to wash it down. Police were baffled by the sheer evil, but after diving into Ronald's life, the motive became very clear. Ronald, quote, the candy man, quote, O'Brien, was born on October 19, 1944. In 1974, when this crime occurred, he was married to Deneen O'Brien and the couple had two children, eight-year-old Timothy and six-year-old Elizabeth. Even before the birth of his two children, Ronald struggled to maintain employment. It was reported that from 1964 to 1974, Ronald held 21 different jobs, a pace of a new job every six months, and was often out of work and had amassed a large amount of debt. Investigators discovered that Ronald had accumulated around $100,000 worth of debt in 1974, which is the equivalent of $600,000 today, and was facing termination at his job for suspected employee theft. The investigators had located life insurance policies for the children that had been taken out in January of 1974 for $10,000. A few months later, the policies were doubled, and then just days before Halloween, the policies were doubled again. Against the objections of his life insurance policy, Ronald had built up these policies on his children's lives to around $60,000, or almost $400,000 in today's money. Normally, life insurance on children is recommended to help cover costs like medical bills and funeral expenses, and Ronald's policies were 10 times larger than anyone would need to cover the majority of cases involving the death of their child. Payouts on children's life insurance policies are thankfully extremely rare, as the leading cause of death in children is related to accidents. Anyone taking out a large policy against their child was playing the lottery at very, very low odds and was most likely never going to get a payout on the policy. We've talked a few times before uh, cases involving spouses uh, killing off their spouse for life insurance. Yes, there's some curiosity, some suspicion when somebody takes out a very large life insurance policy on their spouse, but as an adult, and depending on what that spouse does for a living, in the case of the male black widow, that husband was taking out a very large policy on his, on his wife, but she was a doctor and she had her own practice, made a lot of money, provided a lot of financial support for the family. So if she were to die, it's not unreasonable that a large life insurance policy would be taken out in order to help cover the costs of the paying for the, the mortgage on the home, paying for, in some cases, children's educations, whatever it might be. When you start getting life insurance policies in the million, two, three million dollar range, yes, you're going to start raising some, some suspicion. But when you take out a life insurance policy on a child, and again, these are 1974 figures of starting at 10,000. And I'm guessing $10,000 worth of life insurance on a child in 1974, even just the $10,000 amount was considered pretty excessive. I mean, that's the equivalent of roughly $60,000 today, which again, would cover medical bills in the case of some type of accident where the child is getting transported to the hospital and unfortunately passes at the hospital and then definitely would cover the funeral expenses. So again, $10,000 seems reasonable. When you're doubling that and then doubling it again just days before your child dies to the point that you now have 10 times the amount you need on this child's policy, police are going to look at that plus some of the stuff that just hasn't made sense so far and now Ronald is going to be their prime suspect. So investigators now believe the murder of Timothy was financially motivated. Ronald could not pay off a large portion of his outstanding debt 
and especially if both children died, he would be living a life without kids and therefore a much more affordable life. And I say that, and that's just how evil or messed up this line of thinking is. Anybody, the the you that out there that have kids, whether they be young kids or even older kids, I have three boys. I know what it costs to raise kids, whether it be the additional food, the sports fees, the clothing. Eventually now my oldest is just about to drive, so car and insurance and, and everything is, it's expensive. And if you were to remove those expenses from your life, I mean, that's going to give you a lot more money at the end of every month. Now, I would never trade any of that money for my kids, ever. I mean, I, I'm fine with, with spending the money to have the time with my children so that, and they can enjoy sports and school activities and all that kind of stuff. But if you're in this really messed up mindset and you're very deep in debt and you're looking at, well, not only will this life insurance payout help me get out of debt, then I won't have the expense of raising a child. So it's in their very messed up mind it's a double win police are looking at this saying okay as as hard as as it is for us to believe that a father could do this to their child the the optics of it are starting to make more sense and so the more they dug into ronald's finances the more they found out how dire his situation was the house was in foreclosure his vehicle was about to be repossessed and with the impending job termination he was losing any chance of keeping his financial life from completely falling apart And that's another part of this story is there is a large amount of desperation on the part of Ronald. And this isn't to take away anything from what he did, which was absolutely terrible. But I guess if I had to rate how terrible it was, he did this because of a dire financial situation. Again, it doesn't excuse it, but it's just one notch below somebody doing it just purely for the finances. And and we've seen that before with people who kill off their spouses They don't even have to be in debt. They just want those millions of dollars in their bank account so they can spend it and go on vacations and do all that kind of stuff. Like that's that's evil. And this is evil on another level because it's your child. But I guess what I'm trying to say is at least it's not that they had a comfortable and posh lifestyle and he wanted to add on top of that with this life insurance payout. Again, doesn't excuse anything that he did. I'm just saying... If doing it for just purely the money so that you can do whatever you want is a 10, this knocks it down to a 9 in the fact that he's facing these dire financial situations. And with the motive identified, police went to work gathering necessary evidence to bring Ronald to justice. Just because he was in dire financial straits and the death of his child would benefit him, that alone did not make him a killer. They needed to prove that Ronald had access to the deadly poison and could have been the person who laced the candy. So we talk about this a lot, we bring it up in almost every case when investigators are trying to establish the elements of the crime. We talk about means, motive, and opportunity. Motive is what they often are going to look for first. Is there a reason for this crime? Because if there's not a reason for the crime, and that the reason could be as simple as somebody just wanting to kill somebody else, uh, in the case of spree killers or serial killers, sometimes it's just the thrill of the kill can be the motive, but most murders have some type of built-in motive it may be to silence somebody it may be to for financial gain it may be related to drugs or gangs but you're going to find that motive in almost every murder once you find the motive linked to a certain suspect then you still have to find that the means of opportunity exist 
Because I can have all the motive in the world to kill somebody else. I can want somebody else dead more than anything else in the world. But if that person is in Ireland right now while I'm here in Minnesota, and I'm not talking about a contract for hire, I'm talking about me physically wanting to harm that person, my means and opportunity to hurt that person and more so the opportunity. It could be, I own several guns, so it can be, I really wanna shoot somebody. I wanna shoot somebody worse than anything else because for whatever reason they wronged me. So I can have the motive and I can have the guns and the means to do it, but I need to have the opportunity. If that person's in Ireland and I'm here and they die in Ireland, I don't have the opportunity to shoot them. It, it just, you can't, you can't have a murder until you prove all three things. So with Ronald, yes, they have a ton of motive with this financial stuff, but they need to prove that he could get his hands on cyanide and that he could be the one to deliver it. Well, the opportunity is right there. He's the one that takes the kids trick-or-treating. He's the one that gives Timothy the uh, straw. So he's got opportunity. He's actually the one that opens the straw and helps him ingest it and gives him the Kool-Aid to drink it down. So we definitely have motive. We definitely have opportunity. We need to find the means. So investigators are fan out because they need to prove that Ronald had access to the deadly poison and could be the person who laced it. So they check out several local chemical supply companies in the area. Eventually they find what they're looking for when an employee of one of the companies remembered Ronald coming to the store and inquiring about buying potassium cyanide. The chemicals used in certain applications such as metal plating, especially in jewelry, but the company that Ronald visited only sold it in bulk quantities, and Ronald left after finding out he could not buy the smaller amount that he needed. It was reported that he even joked with the employee asking how much he would need to kill someone. Police were never able to identify where Ronald ultimately obtained the chemical, but they were able to show that he'd been trying to get his hands on the deadly powder. And this is a time before the internet. This is a time when if you wanted to buy something, I mean, I guess there was mail order catalogs, you weren't hopping on the internet to order something to be delivered, which is both a pro and a con in today's world. Our access to stuff is so much greater, but there's an electronic trail that most people don't realize. And that can be whether it's purchased in person at a store because of CCTV footage, because of credit card receipts, because of receipts that get left around the house. Back in 1974, investigators, it's gonna be very difficult for them to find specifically where he purchased this chemical. There may have been other means in 1974 in which to purchase small amounts of cyanide that he figured out that meant that investigators were never going to find the actual source of this uh, cyanide, but they are going to be able to prove at this point that he's out actively looking for the cyanide, and it's not hard to believe that because he's out there looking for it, eventually he, he does find a way to get his hands on some cyanide. And a search of the O'Brien home located a pocket knife with powdered candy residue, and investigators believed it was the knife used to cut open the top portion of the tube. Ronald then dumped out the first couple inches of powder and replaced it with the potassium cyanide. The search also revealed adding machine tape that had been used to calculate the total debt Ronald needed to pay off to stay afloat. The debt amount was very close to the final amount the life insurance had been raised to just days before the murder. And when confronted with the evidence, Ronald denied his involvement and agreed to take a polygraph to show his innocence. Ronald failed the polygraph, and on November 5, 1974, just days after the death of his son, Ronald was arrested for capital murder and attempted murder. The arrest shocked those who knew Ronald as he presented the image of a law-abiding, middle-class, loving father and husband. 
His wife, Denine, told investigators she was unaware of the plan to murder the children and use the life insurance policy money to get out of debt. It's unknown if she actually knew how bad the family financials were at the time of the murder, and she would eventually testify against Ronald and divorce him and raise Elizabeth. And this is something we do see. Unfortunately, a lot of the times, spouses, whether it be the husband or the wife, they might not know how bad the financial situation of the family overall is, especially if one person handles all the finances. There's been several instances, even in my personal life, some people that I know who's, if it was the husband that always paid the mortgage and then he lost his job and he just would tell the his wife that everything was fine, the mortgage still getting paid, when in reality, especially with online banking, sometimes just one person has the password to the bank account, the mortgage isn't getting paid, somehow they're intercepting their foreclosure notices. There's a couple people that I know back in the the last housing crisis when there was foreclosures that literally the day the sheriff's department showed up to do the eviction from the foreclosure is when one of the spouses found out that they hadn't been paying the mortgage in was it 12 months, 18 months, something like that. So there are situations in which spouses are not aware of terrible financial situations. So it is very possible. Now, a lot of people will cast suspicion on the spouse when something like this happens, which isn't fair. I mean, they're already a victim in the fact that they've lost a child. And so I give, definitely give Danny the benefit of the doubt that it's very possible, especially the further we go back in history when gender roles were a little more established, I guess is the way to say it, in relationships where a lot of the times the, the, the man worked, brought home the paychecks, handled the finances, and the woman you know, raised the children, got them off to school, cleaned the house, cooked dinner. I mean, it was, it was a time period, and the, 1974 was kind of in that flux transition time period more women were working more women were pursuing careers but it's not like it is today so it is very possible that ronald was the person in charge of all the finances and even if they knew how bad they were financially doesn't mean that she was in on any type of a plan to increase the life insurance on her children and then collect on it through a murder so although she got a lot of suspicion cast at her after this murder, everything that I found looks to be she's truly a victim. She lost her child. And again, that's what she would testify to in court and then divorce uh, Ronald uh, after the trial. And Ronald's capital murder trial began on May 5th, 1975. And the prosecution presented Ronald as a desperate but cold and calculated murderer. They laid out his financial situation and explained to the jury how the morning after the death of his child, Ronald was on the phone with the insurance company looking to cash in on the large policy. And, and this is something that you do see from time to time when you're researching these life insurance family murder type cases is it's sometimes the next morning, sometimes it's three days later. It's just these people cannot wait. And, and I get it to a certain degree. Even if somebody in your family dies from natural causes, it's not a a, a, no crime occurred somebody still has to make that phone call to the life insurance company at some point and and start the process rolling start the application process rolling but i think if you look at in the case of say one of your parents or uh, an aunt or an uncle that somehow you're responsible for the insurance policy if if the death was somewhat expected yeah, maybe a day, the next day or the day after that, you're calling, just kind of starting to get stuff 
rolling like would kind of make sense if this was an unexpected death of your child that you had nothing to do with i don't think the hundredth thought in my mind would be checking to see if there's a life insurance policy on my child and and considering that timothy died the evening before it's making it sound as if ronald probably called at the start of business on the next day looking to cash in on this policy so again it's like the reaction to death thing. Not everybody's going to react to death the same, so you can't put a blanket statement out there that if somebody reacts a certain way, then they're they're definitely guilty or they're definitely innocent. But when I look at how long it takes somebody to call in the life insurance, if it's somebody very, very close to you that died, it definitely is way more suspicious if that seems to be kind of your priority is is starting this process versus just dealing with your own grief, your own emotional turmoil, all that kind of stuff. So the the prosecution's case is going to lay out a, a pretty solid case against Ronald, starting with his finances, and then that's backed up by all the debt that they're going to look at, the foreclosure on the home, the repossession of the car, this attempt to cash in on the life insurance policy. And they're also going to spell out this dangerous plan that Ronald concocted. This is the father who had never taken his children trick-or-treating, all of a sudden volunteering to do so in the rain to ensure that he could try to pass off this candy as part of trick-or-treating haul given to the children by a stranger. I mean, this is a pretty devious plan. And he knew that just one piece of the tainted candy from a stranger would be suspicious, so he put both of his children and three other children at risk to try and throw off investigators by overwhelming them with victims and possible motives. And there's a couple other poisoning cases where we have seen this. There's still one I want to cover that was kind of a copycat of the Tylenol murders, where somebody was specifically targeting somebody for death by poisoning, but kind of did a mass poisoning like the Tylenol murders so that nobody would be looking at one specific victim. They'd have to try to look at all the victims and all the, the suspects in those victims' lives. So Ronald had this plan. Now, I did read somewhere that Ronald went out of his way to make sure that the neighbor children didn't have their candy. Something about one of the neighbor children, they after they walked back to their houses, they all went back to the neighbor's house first, and the boy there was going to try to ingest the pixie stick. And it was said that Ronald like leapt across the table and took the candy away from the kid. Now, at first glance, maybe you think that's like a hero move on his part, like he doesn't want the other child to become harmed. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized cyanide is such a fast-acting poison that, of course, if the kid ingested it and then began convulsing and dying, then this is going to destroy Ronald's plan because there's no way he's going to be able to convince his child to consume the, or ingest the pixie stick after this, his own son, Timothy, sees the neighbor boy die from the the tainted powder so at first thought it's kind of one of those like oh well he didn't want you know this this other boy to die well he probably didn't care and it probably was part of his plan hopefully that that other boy would die uh to take some of the suspicion off of him but the timing of wasn't wasn't right for ronald because this was going to occur before timothy had a chance to ingest his and I, i think proof of this is in the fact that he cared about that instance but he didn't care about this kid from church that almost died but he couldn't get the staple out you know had he really only wanted timothy to die and had been trying to protect the quote unquote protect the other children 
he lost all chance to protect that fifth child when he gave him the pixie stick out while trick-or-treating. And it's actually going to be said that, or he told police that it was Timothy's choice to, to eat the pixie stick, but I think it was Danine said or in her testimony that Ronald basically convinced Timothy to have the pixie stick that evening. So what at first appeared to be, oh no, the Timothy just picked the worst candy to ingest that evening on his own, out of nowhere. A different picture is painted during the trial stating that Ronald basically forced Timothy to a certain degree, convinced him to eat this tainted candy, helped him eat the candy, helped him down it with the Kool-Aid and all that kind of stuff, and made sure that his son was going to die from the candy. And thankfully, as sinister and well thought out the plan was, it did have its weaknesses. That included that the staples Ronald used were too difficult for the children to defeat. So it was only Timothy with the help of Ronald who was able to open the straw and ingest the poison. And Ronald failed to predict the depth of the investigation and somehow believed the police would either not figure out that Timothy was poisoned or would somehow not follow up on the anonymous donor of the tainted candy. My personal thought is that Ronald is assuming that the death by cyanide that Timothy would die in his sleep and so it would be viewed as a natural death, thus escaping the scrutiny of a murder investigation. And if that wasn't his assumption, I guess the donation of the other four deadly pixie sticks was his only defense against what was going to be a massive and deep investigation. So we do see this from time to time. People make out these elaborate murder plots and they don't see the weaknesses. It's, it's something that we've talked about many times before. You can convince yourself that your plan is going to work, that there are no weaknesses, any weaknesses that you come up with, you explain away, and now you think you have the perfect plan. But to somebody else who's on the outside, they're going to look at your plan and they're going to find five, six, seven major weaknesses that you either didn't think of or that you didn't think were going to be noticeable. And so, again, in this this case of, of this murder, how do you not think the police are going to try to follow up with this tainted candy, not going to try to find the house that this candy came from do you think the police are just going to say oh well five kids died and we're not going to try to figure out who gave them this candy again that to me is the biggest weakest part of this entire plan is he doesn't have a valid scapegoat to throw it on he doesn't have somebody else for the police to look at i mean he thought he did but even then if he had just done a little bit of research into the house he's going to blame this on and find out that the guy has got an airtight alibi and couldn't actually be there, it's the plan is, isn't going to work. So again, and, and it's very possible that Ronald didn't understand how this cyanide works and what type of death this was going to be for Timothy. It's possible he thought Timothy would ingest the poison, he'd just lay down, go to sleep, fall into unconsciousness, and the next morning they'd find him dead. People question why he would call 911 and and that's another part of the investigation well i think it's because obviously his wife is now home the mother of, of of his children and you think she's gonna just let timothy die without somebody calling 911 without somebody trying to save his life especially since she's not aware of this murder plot so i think that was one of the major parts of the plan that didn't go for Ronald the way he thought it was that all of a sudden instead of his child just dying in his sleep and and maybe people not even really looking into it or not being able to figure out what the source of it was it, it just everything in this plan worked against Ronald because he didn't realize what was actually going to happen his defense would try to argue that it's a well-known issue with trick-or-treating that it's dangerous and there are plenty of urban legends about poison candy however 
they failed to produce any evidence of a single case of death via poisoned candy that occurred before Timothy's death. And after both the prosecution and defense rested their cases for the trial, it took the jury only 45 minutes to find Ronald guilty of the premeditated and heinous crime of killing his son and the attempted murder of his daughter and three other children. It took an additional 71 minutes for the jury to recommend the death penalty due to the crime occurring against a minor and for attempted financial gain. The June 3, 1975 decision by the jury launched a slew of appeals from Ronald's lawyers claiming various judges, prosecutor, and jury violations. The late 1970s and early 1980s was a tumultuous time for the justice system with different states applying the rule of law to death penalty cases at their own will. Many cases, including Ronald, saw their appeals go to the Supreme Court. Two of Robert's appeals went before the top court of the nation, and both times the appeals resulted in the conviction and sentence being confirmed. And so we talk about this kind of pre-1970. It's not as if there weren't legal challenges to things like the death penalty, but it's kind of seen as a awakening period of, of the courts, a very activist time in, in the court systems, a lot of cases being brought to the Supreme Court revolving around the death penalty. So it was very popular for the Supreme Court to take on death penalty cases because, as I said, death penalty is actually a state right to choose whether or not a state has the death penalty. And because it's a state right in America, there's a lot of different approaches to it. And because there's different approaches to it, there's different legal challenges to those approaches. So a lot of lawyers brought death penalty cases to the Supreme Court during the 70s and 80s. And it really kind of redefined what, for the most part, what we have in states that still have death penalties is a much more homogenized system now. Now, there are still differences. There are still state rights involved in that. There are plenty of states that don't have the death penalty. But from where we were in the 1960s to where we are now with the process, different parts of capital murder trials, how they're run, it's a much more controlled system now than it was prior to the 1970s and 1980s. And one of the prosecuting attorneys told a &E True Crime that he remembered delivering an oral argument to the Supreme Court stating something similar to, if this case doesn't meet the standards for capital punishment, I don't know what case would. And, and we see that because any death is tragic. Any murder is a heinous crime. We've, we've talked about that before. But some killings, some crimes are just worse than others. And a lot of states have it where if you torture the person before they die, a.k.a. the, the case out of South Dakota that we covered, uh, if you commit that crime against a child, if uh, you are doing the crime for financial gain, if you kill multiple people, if uh, there's sex assault involved in the crime. There's a lot of factors that if, if your murder includes other things in states with the death penalty, that makes it a death penalty case. And so this prosecutor is going to argue you've got a minor, and in this case, actually the son, this guy is supposed to be protecting this child, bringing him into the world, raising him supporting him all that kind of stuff and this is going to be the killer and he's doing it for this financial gain and he's doing it in a terrible way and to someone who fully trusts his father so they're looking at saying if if this isn't a death penalty case i don't know what is and ronald was sent to death row at a prison near huntsville texas and it was said that he was shunned by all of his fellow inmates and given the nickname the candy man his status as a child killer and being that it was his own child meant he was one of the lowest members of the prison society. 
With his appeals exhausted, Ronald was put to death on March 31, 1984. He gave a paragraph-long speech for his last words, professing his innocence but forgiving those who were bound by law to execute him. Crowds of death penalty supporters and his fellow inmates cheered when it was announced that Ronald had been killed via lethal injection. There were anti-death penalty protesters outside the prison who chose to throw candy at the death penalty supporters. Ronald's crimes became the first known attempt to blame the Halloween tradition of trick-or-treating for a murder via poisoning, and while the investigation and trial revealed the killer was not a random stranger, the story of Timothy O'Brien's death is still used as the basis for some of the urban legends related to the dangers of trick-or-treating. In the 50 years since the death of Timothy, there have not been another case of murder via tainted Halloween candy, and hopefully there never will be. Millions of children will take to the streets tonight to experience the joy and magic that is collecting pounds of sweet treats to consume over the next few weeks. Many parents will go through their children's candy looking for razor blades and open packages, actions that can be traced back to the heinous act of a murderous father. But that is the story of the tragic Halloween death of Timothy O'Brien. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.